high point of using it. This is one of his favorite words, so this is obviously one of his favorite passages. Here it is. This is the summa cum laude of passages that he uses. I did that one on purpose, okay? And here's, we're highlighting this passage from this theme, and here's what we're going to be doing. I'm so excited about this. If I could get to you a third of the blessing that I had studying this passage, I would be so happy. We're going to see the Lord at work. The Lord, the Lord Jesus at work. We're going to see him at work. We're going to see how he works. We're going to see how false worldly lords work and what a mess they make. And what I'm really praying for is that that we'll see him. That we'll actually see Jesus this morning. That the Lord, the Holy Spirit will give us eyes of faith. That the Lord will give us um, the ability to see past the things around us and help us to see Jesus Christ this morning. Because like, what's a sermon supposed to be besides that? Isn't it like, I don't need, I don't know about you, I don't need like eight steps to anything or four keys towards some other thing or, or an acronym at the end of the sermon. Oh, it spelled something. Here's what I need. I need to see the Lord. You've experienced this where you actually like encounter him on the pages of scripture or during a message, you just see him and you're changed. You're changed. Like not you're going to change or you've figured out how to change, but you're, you're just transformed. That's a big thing to ask, isn't it? That's what we're asking for this morning. All right, let's stand for the reading of God's word. This is Acts 16, starting in verse 11. I'm going to preach the whole chapter, but I'm reading through verse 19 to start. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul, and after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we met. we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this morning and a chance to gather together as your community and open up your word, which you have given us. And it's in your word that we read that all of us with unveiled faces 
are beholding the glory of the Lord and are being transformed from glory to glory into that same image. So we pray that that's what would happen this morning. Jesus Christ, would you come through the truth of of your word, through the proclamation of your gospel, and be seen. Would you help us, help our souls to see your glory and be transformed into that glory? Spirit, we know that is your work, so we pray you'd have great freedom here this morning. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Lord, we pray these things. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Okay. Today's sermon has... One point. I'm going to give it to you at the beginning at the risk of having you tune out. Here it is. I got one point. It's four lessons, one point. The point is this, that you become what you worship. You become what you worship. Do you know that? Um, uh, The Old Testament says this in several places. Here's the easiest place to find it. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. It's talking about idols. Listen to this. It says, they have, about idols, they have mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. Here's the verse, Psalm 115.8. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You become what you worship. Let me see if I can find some different ways to say that. We'll start with A. You approximate what you admire. You become what you bow down to. You... I wrote a bunch of these down. Correspond to what you commend. Special thanks to thesaurus.com for these. You duplicate what you delight in. You imitate what you idolize. You match what you magnify. You, I have another P, where is it? Parallel what you praise. You verge on what you venerate. That one was terrible. <laughs> but here's, what, here's, here's the easiest way I have for you to get it. It's the R one. You resemble what you revere. You resemble what you revere. The thing that you put in front of your eyes that you are chasing after, watch. You become that. You become like that. It has a shaping influence on you. Worship, praise, has a shaping influence on your life. And we're going to see that. That's why this discussion about who the Lord is in this passage is great. You're going to hear, by the way, just in case you don't get it today, Rod is speaking. I talked with him on Tuesday morning. Rod is speaking on the same theme. So, you know, here comes right-left punch. He's throwing both of those. I'm just your corner man. Okay. One point, four lessons. We're going to see this in four different ways. People becoming what they worship. People resembling what they revere. Lesson one is the story of Lydia, verses 11 through 15. Let's walk through the text. Setting sail from Troas, we made direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis. That's about 150 miles Acts 20, verse 6 says that the return journey on that took about five days. So that's the type of travel we're doing right here. Verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is, here we go. Now we're going to spend the whole chapter in this town. It's a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. The thing you need to know about this place walking in, it's a Roman colony. That's a huge deal. It was, seems to be founded by... Um, um, some soldiers, some Roman soldiers that kind of had retired there. It's Roman colony. That's a huge deal for the rest of our chapter. We remained in the city for some days. Okay, we don't know if Paul preached in any of these smaller towns. The story is driving us towards Philippi. The big deal that Luke wants to tell us about is in Philippi. 
Is that because Paul doesn't care about small towns? Is that because he only has a heart for the big city because he's trying to set up some sort of huge, like, Paul.com empire? What's he trying to set up? No. No, because watch what happens. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. That little description, verse 13, like the word to write on the margin there is marginalized, okay? Marginalized. This, in every description of this, it is talking about this being on the outside. It's outside geographically. They have to go outside of a gate to get there. It's, um, it's on the other side of a river. They have to go across a river to find where this is. It's outside of the city. This is not Philippi. This is outside. It's outside... Um, I wrote this down really well because I knew I wanted to preach on it. It's outside gender-wise. So, for example, if you, um, in order to have a synagogue, you need 10 Jewish males. So there's not 10 guys at this event. There's not 10 guys. It's uh, some ladies, some godly ladies outside gathering together for prayer. And thirdly, it's Jewish. So it's outside, like, ethnically, religiously, it's outside. I mean, like, this whole chapter. Remember, how do we introduce the city? What is it? It starts with an R. What type of city? Roman. It's a Roman city. And this is a Jewish custom, and you're going to see what a big deal that is. All of this is marginalized. And Paul, like Neil taught us about Barnabas last week, Jesus went outside. Jesus crossed the worldly divides and reached the marginalized. Barnabas did the same thing, reaching out to John Mark. And now Paul is doing the same thing. He's reaching across the borders, the natural borders, to the marginalized. Wow. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods. Some of you grew up in Bible land. What do you know about sellers of purple goods? It means what? Wealthy. Very good. And who, who wears purple goods? Yeah, you guys know everything that the Okay, you get an A-plus on that one. Really good. That's it. It's wealthy and royal. That's who this lady is. She's rich. She's got a whole household. You're going to see it in a bit. Look at this, the end of 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. It's miraculous. It's a beautiful picture of how salvation works. Paul preaches. The Lord opens her heart. Lydia pays attention. All the pieces are right there. It's beautiful. Verse 15. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. All right? The gospel leads to hospitality. The world works on building borders and distinctions. And you're not like us in the following 12 ways. And the gospel starts with hospitality. The gospel says, I got a house. You guys are obviously from out of town. Come stay with me. Hospitality. It is one of the great beautiful Christian virtues, uh, which is espoused in, I can't believe I used the word espoused, Romans 12, 13, 1 Timothy 3, 2, Hebrews 13, 2, and 1 Peter 4, 9 talks about the call of the Christian as, as a hospitable person. This is who we are as believers because we match what we magnify. Jesus is hospitable. He welcomes us into his family. He's welcoming, and as we worship him, we become like him. Astounding. Okay, lesson one. Here's the name of the lesson. Lesson one is only the Lord brings salvation. That's the first lesson to be learned from the passage. This, 
kurios, this Lord, the Lord brings salvation. What type of Lord is Jesus Christ? I kind of mentioned this before. He's the God of the outsider. He's the God of the disenfranchised. He's a God who saves. I want to take a minute. I want to take four minutes. I want to take four minutes and talk and see if I can fix a little, address a little problem that I've heard myself and some of my friends and some of the people here at Crossroads talk about, about this. What's the relationship between God at work and me at work? What is that? Is that like, you know, Keith Green says, you do your best, pray that it's blessed, he'll take care of the rest. I mean, that rhymes, and that's really good. But is that it? I mean, do we do everything we're supposed to do and God, like, fills in the cracks? Or does God do, like, some other people are like, look, I just want to, like, really, I don't want to do this ministry. I just want God to do it for me. Like, okay, well, I get that. Like, what, what is this relationship? And I think the, the predominant, the, the dominating metaphor we have, if, if I could um, try to say it succinctly, is a pie, okay? Picture, oh, this is delicious. It's a pie, okay? And the way we talk sometimes sounds like we cut it up. Part of the pie is me. This is what I do. I have this part of the pie. And the other part of the pie is the Lord's. And sometimes we'll talk about like, oh, really spirit-filled, victorious Christians Give the whole pie to God. God, this is your pie. You have all of, the, all of the activity here. It is yours. And then, well, okay, I mean, if I have a slice and he has like nine of the ten pieces, I mean, that's still pretty good. I mean, that's still pretty good. But bad would be if he only has one slice and I have nine slices, that's not good. Or if he has no slices, then that means non-Christian. Do you see? I'm saying that that whole picture is unhelpful, and it doesn't do justice to the way the New Testament talks about God and us working. Let me give you some references. So what's the, what's the, what's the better metaphor instead of a pie? I don't know. I don't know, okay? But here's, let me talk about how the New Testament talks about it, and then we can come up with a metaphor together. Look at this. This is 1 Corinthians 15.10. Paul says, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. But it wasn't me, it was the grace of God in me. Okay, what's that? So who did the work? He's like, I worked. At the end of that day, I was really sweaty. I mean, I, I did a lot of that work. I worked harder than those guys. At the same time, it was uh, the grace of God in me that was working. Okay, so what, is, what slice of pie is that? Uh, the pie thing doesn't work. Here's another one. Um, Philippians 2.12, Paul commands the church in Philippi to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That means you got a job to do. Why should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Verse 13 says, because it is God who is at work. Wait a minute. I thought I had to work. Yes, you do. Because God is doing it, both to will and to do. I don't get it. Okay, here's, an, here's another one. It's the fruit of the Spirit, remember? Um, Galatians 5, this is verse 23, says that one of the fruits of the Spirit, one of the ways you can tell that the Spirit is really at work in a person is that they have self-control, right? So, like, that's the opposite of the pie scenario. The pie says, listen, I just need to give God complete control. That means me, you know, Jesus, take the wheel, you know, that's a pretty cool song, but like that's maybe not um, what the New Testament's talking about. It seems, 
One of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The more the Spirit is at work in you, the more you are in control of yourself. Just to like take it backwards. The, you know, when you are not pressing into the Spirit, you're actually, it's not like you took over control from the Holy Spirit. It is actually you are out of control more. Uh, that squares with a lot of my experience. Sometimes when I've made foolish decisions and just tried to take control, I end up, where, how did I end up over here? That was not the plan. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Like that flies very opposite of what we tend to think. Here's the last one, 2 Timothy 2.7. This mind-blowing passage, this verse, a single verse. Paul has just described the Christian life as um, athletic, like a farmer, and like a soldier. He gives like three analogies. And he says to Timothy, he says, listen, think over everything I say, and God will give you understanding. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Because we tend to do one of those two things. We're like, okay, think over what I say, and you'll figure it out. That's this, or Go into a dark room, empty your mind, do some yoga, cleanse your brain of all thoughts, and God will direct feed that truth into you. No, neither of those, says the New Testament. The New Testament says, think about this really hard. Consider what I say. And when you have it figured out, know for a fact that God, will give, that God gave you understanding. So you think about it really hard. You look at conjunctions. You look up words. You sweat over what the text means. And when you get some understanding of it, you don't pat yourself on the back and like, I did it. I figured it out. Three years of Greek study, and now I can do it. No. God gives you the understanding, not from uh, the pursuit of a lazy life that just let go of everything and just took whatever came per chance. Does that make sense? So not a pie, um, help me with an analogy for next week so I can help the other campus. Okay? That's anti-pie thinking. All right. Lesson one, only the Lord brings salvation. So, when the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul said, who did it? Yes. Yes. That's who did it. That's who did it. Okay? There you go. Lesson two. Lesson two is the story of the slave girl and her lords. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, so the same place they had just been before, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. This NIV helps you here. It says, by which she predicted the future. And she brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. You can't see it because it's in the Greek and not the English. The word owners there is the word lords, kurioi. So now we're, here's, oh, that's one of Luke's words, okay? So he's got, like, it's like, if the book of Acts is a song, this is like the click track going through. Here it is. This helps you line up where you're at. This is the kick and the snare of this beat. Lords. There's, this girl's got lords. Oh, let's see what happens. Well, first of all, what do we know about this girl? First, she's a slave. Not like Lydia. Yes, she's making money, but she doesn't get to keep any of it. She's a slave. She's demon-possessed. She's pos- I just hate to blow over words that are that huge. She's possessed by a demonic spirit who speaks through her. She's owned by financial lords who exploit this girl for gain. And she's owned by demonic lords who exploit her to her own destruction. 
So verse 17, she followed Paul and us. Isn't it fun? Luke's now part of the story. Crying out, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So Paul right here, Luke is showing you, Paul and Jesus are pretty similar. This happened all the time to Jesus. Uh, Luke 4, he's preaching in the Capernaum synagogue, and there's a guy in there who just starts blurting out demonic things, and Jesus casts him out in the synagogue. Luke 8, um, 27, it's the story of the guy who lives in the graveyard. Jesus comes by, and he starts yelling, it's the, you know. So this is Paul, like Christ, same sort of thing happening. But look what she yells. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Question, why is a demon-possessed girl preaching the gospel? Right? Isn't that a little weird? Like she's, whoa. I mean, she came to some churches, you know, they, I mean, she might be an elder and like, oh, you have the spirit of evangelism. Wow, look at that. A couple things you need to know. A couple things you need to know. Where, where are we? It's Philippi. What type of city is it? It starts with an R. Okay, so when it's a Roman hears the phrase, most high God, what do they think? Yeah, Zeus, Caesar. It's confusing. It's social studies teachers get an A for what this group just came up with. That's right. It's Jupiter. It's Zeus. It's Caesar. The most high God who proclaims to you the way of salvation. This is not how can I be a part of the promises made to Abraham by a covenant-keeping God? Not at all. This is, these men are servants. By the way, like it's the same word like that describes herself. Like, these men are servants of the Most High, of Zeus. These are Zeus slaves, and they're here to tell you salvation, like not the Jewish, what, like how to get to heaven when I die sorts of thoughts that we put on salvation. But these men are here to help you figure out how to make your life easier. These men are here to help you with the difficulties, salvation. So you can see why Paul, who as Galatians and 2 Corinthians demonstrates, had a look that he could give. Who knows, there's there's a verse in Galatians that is maybe one of the meanest things written in the New Testament. It's awesome. I won't even quote it. Okay. She kept doing this for many days, and Paul, having become greatly annoyed, you know, because, like, the Lord doesn't need um, demonic public relations help. Did you know that? Or, like, approval from, um, from this at all. Turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Not some abstract not some most high concept. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's get this really clear. We're not on the same team. We're not like, you're not like one degree off from us. We're not like the same jersey as you. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Paul lovingly, look at that. He distinguishes between the girl and the spirit. He's not yelling at the girl. He loves this girl. Just turns and says to the spirit. Get out of her. And he came out that very hour. Wow. But then, verse 19, when her owners, again, lords, saw that their hope of gain was gone. So now they're hopeless. Like, oh, that, that was it. That was our whole, uh, that, was, that was the trick, was that this girl could, and now she's, you think they took care of her after that? You think she went home with her former owners? Like, that's all right. Well, we got a good retirement plan for you. 
not even close. Like, they, she just gets neglected by them. They seize Paul and Silas, and they drag them into the marketplace before the rulers of the city. What type of city is it again? There, thank you. Just thank you for tracking with me. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Question, what, what customs is Paul and Barnabas advocating right now? I mean, the only one the text mentions is, you know, um, liberating demonically possessed um, young females. That's the custom that they've done that's got them in trouble. But look how it it just gets held up. More on the Roman-Jewish distinction in, in a minute. Verse 22, the crowd joined in attacking them. The magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Again, let's not just fly over that little clause. That's the, so, rods. This is the Roman. This isn't a Jewish punishment. This is a Roman punishment. Rods. And Paul and Silas, NIV says severely flogged. ESV says many blows. They inflicted many blows upon them. Is that 10? Is that, is that 50 blows? Like, just around the arms, on the head, where? Then they, then they threw them into prison. No trial. They're assumed guilty. The, the rulers don't care about anything except just pragmatically restoring the status quo. They ordered the jailer to keep them safely. The word safely, there's a slightly misfortune. The word really means securely. It doesn't mean like, jailer, please, please take care of these guys. Just keep them safe. It's not that. It's keep them secure. As you can see, Right here, verse 24, having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Why are we putting Christians in stocks in the inner prison? It's because apparently they get out of jail faster than Michigan State fans send tweets after a win. Sorry, I waited 40, 47 minutes. You know Rod Sermon had that in like two minutes, okay? So there they are. Now they're in prison. They got their feet in stocks. Is that extra security? Is that torture? In Acts 5 and Acts 12, prison serves to try to control the gospel. No, we're going to like shut it down. We're going to control the gospel. Paul doesn't, doesn't buy that at all. Paul actually, and we'll see this in a bit, Paul sees prison as a pulpit. How does he do that? What type of thinking leads you to that? He takes the opportunity to testify to God's character in the midst of unbelievers. So here we are. Here's lesson two. Let me spell it out for you. Lesson two, the lesson is worldly lords bring bondage, despair, and division. Worldly lords bring bondage, despair, and division. They they bring bondage. That girl was enslaved. She was being exploited. They they bring despair. The owners, their hope of gain is gone and they're hopeless. Despair. Division. Philippi is a Roman colony. They're proud of it. They've got to maintain the Roman culture, the Roman standards. Look at this. Look at the contrast. Jesus, Paul, goes to the disenfranchised, leaves the city, includes the outsider. The world erects and highlights ethnic, social, national borders to leverage their power and to gain more control. Christ brings freedom, hope, hospitality. Worldly lords bring bondage, despair, and division. Now, time for 
the third lesson, which is the story of the jailer. Verse 25, it gets crazy. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Okay, what is that? Like this is, the, you know, I know you've heard the story 700 times, but hear it again for the very first time. Beaten, beaten down earlier that day. Now it's midnight, feet in stocks, praying and singing. What are they praying? Well, they're, they're calling out to God for justice. They're calling out to God for release from prison. They're calling out to God for their new fledging little church they started. They're calling out to God for freedom, for continued ministry. And they're singing hymns. They're expressing trust in a God who delivers. Just, you know, can you just picture it? They're in there and like, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, everyone. Oh, and then Silas is like, I love this one. By the blood, is, is it blood of the Lamb? I think it is. Blood of the Lamb. And like, I missed the PowerPoint. That helps us. Like, they just dive right in. They dive right in. They're singing hymns. Listen to this verse. I love this verse. It, like, if you've got your own copy, if, even if you've got a church Bible, write this one in. Right over praying and singing. James 5.13 Okay, James 5.13, write your own Bible too if you want. Here's the verse. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So Paul's like, okay, suffering and cheerful. Got it. Pray and sing. In. Oh. Look at this, the, continuing on in the text. And the prisoners were listening to them. You think when you're going through a difficult time as a Christian, this is one of the times that the world pays attention. This is one of the times the world pays attention because um, here's a truth that I think will help us. When you get bumped, you spill what you're full of, okay? Like sometimes, like I'll just confess a sin here. I have a lot of them. But sometimes like at the end of a, like I'll, I drove eight hours with my kids in the back and at the end and they were starting to like blah, 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 blah. And I just kind of like, right? And I'm like, like, my wife is like, you know, listen, listen, I'm really tired, okay? It's not really fair. I've been doing a lot. Ah, you can't expect godliness from a guy who's this tired. When you're bumped, you spill what you're full of, okay? Hopefully that can be a good reminder to me as well. So now, Paul and Silas, these apostles that have been talking about this, they, they just got bumped several times on the head with a rod, right? And now the prisoners are like, let's, let's see. Let's see. When these guys get bumped, what do they spill? What is it? Suddenly, verse 26, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors popped open. Everyone's bonds were unfastened. 27, the jailer woke and he saw the prison doors were open he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because we know if your prisoner escapes, you get the penalty that that guy was going to get. So the prisoner, the jailer is like, if, maybe I can just do this on my own terms instead of letting them pick the way that happens. Then supposing that the prisoners had escaped, but look, Paul cried out with a loud voice, don't harm yourself, we're all here. Did did. Paul, like, he's obviously in charge. He's the guy yelling, and he's the Apostle Paul, so he's in charge. Did he keep everybody in there? 
The doors pop off. The bonds fly off the people. And he's like, everybody sit tight. The jailer comes out. He's like, don't worry. We're all here. What's he doing? He's caring for the jailer. Look at that. Why, why not just split? He, he's caring for the jailer. Verse 29, now the jailer gets involved. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. It's a picture of worship. He recognized that these were the guys who were talking about deliverance plus earthquake plus they're free equals something's going on. And he says to them, he brought them out and said, you're not going to see this in English, but here it is, sirs. That word right there is Greek, lords. That's our word again. There's Luke's favorite word. Lords. What must I do to be saved? Lords. So again, don't, I know, I grew up in a church where this was often preached. See, he just, he saw his need for a savior and he wanted to know how to spend an eternity in heaven. No, he's a Roman jailer. And what he's saying is, guys, how do I get out of this mess? There's a mess. How do I get out of this mess? Lords, and he's seeing Paul and Silas as the way to get out. Lords, how do I get out of this mess? And look what they say to him. No matter what question he's asking, look where they go. 31, they said, believe in the Lord, singular. See, singulars and plurals sometimes make a big deal. Believe in the Lord Jesus, not us, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord, kurios again. Like, so right there, two times. There's the contrast. Lords, what must I do to be saved? Yeah, forget that plan right there. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to them. And he took them and he went into this house. That same, he took that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Astounding. The hands that just a couple hours ago put Paul's feet into those stocks are now washing those wounds because you resemble what you revere. And now that Christ has become this man's Lord, he's starting to take on those characteristics. He's washing feet. He's serving. Continuing on, verse 33, he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Am I going to talk about infant baptism here? I didn't talk about it when Lydia's house was baptized, and I'm not going to talk about it here either. It's not mentioned explicitly. It's not the emphasis. The emphasis in the text is that the jailer became a believer. See it in verse 34. I'll, I'll read it to you. Then the jailer brought them up into his house and set food before him, and he rejoiced. See, look, salvation results in joy. It's a key theme for the epistle to the Philippians, remember? This town. Along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Wait, who did he believe in? What's the word? What's, the, what's it say at the end of verse 34? He believed in God. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And this guy believed in God. Luke, I mean, Luke's not at the Nicene Council there, but he's like, get it? Do you get it or not? We called you to believe in Jesus. And he believed in God and rejoiced. Ta-da! That's how he's saying it right there. So here's the lesson from 
the jailer. Lesson three, the lesson is good men cannot save only the Lord. Don't look for your salvation from a good person. And look at what the, the, these good men did. When, the, when people came to them for answers, they spoke the word of the Lord to them. See that in verse 32? What a good example for us. I know some of you are like, I, can't, I don't really know enough of the word to speak it to people. Just, let me just give you this example. Some of you know me well enough or maybe stalk me on Twitter enough to, um, to know that my grandpa passed away this summer. Like Walter Westerholm, 54 years, he was a senior pastor. He was the very first Christian in his whole family. His mom, um, my great-grandmother, committed suicide when he was born. And his dad um, sent him to be raised by some friends. And so a broken home situation, no Christian influence. And he, he came to faith in Christ. And he attended Bible college and met my grandmother there. And 54 years, he was a senior pastor. He raised four kids. My dad's the oldest. My dad's a pastor in the free church. Uh, Uncle Steve is a New Testament professor up in Toronto. Aunt Ruth is a Christian education director at a church in Connecticut. Uncle Joel is a, um, a literature prophet at a Christian school in Iowa. Like four, like, kingdom champions. Like, he decided to break the chain of what had come before him, and this is what he was going to be about. All of the grandkids, as far as we can tell, are following Christ. Walter Westerholm. This great man of God passed away this summer. So, I mean, I stood in a line, a receiving line, and I met 15 people easily who um, were like, yeah, your grandpa led me to Christ. I sold him two cars, and I was kind of going through a divorce, and he had this track with him all the time, and he just like spoke the word to me, and I accepted Christ. And I, we were going to get married and came to him for premarital counseling, but I wasn't a believer, and he wouldn't do it until, and he led me to the Lord. Like, I met like 15 people like that. So, really great time, as great as that can be. As we're getting in the van, the three kids strapped into car seats, my Aunt Ruth, who is single and um, lives with them, came running out with this. She's like, here, this is for you. I'm like, it's Grandpa's Bible. And I mean, let me just see if I can show a little bit here. I just opened it up randomly. That's the book of Amos. I don't know how colorful your book of Amos is. <laughs> but there, I mean, that's, here, it's not fair that I'm just picking one. How about Acts 6? Well, I'll just go here where the pages are falling apart. That's 1 Corinthians 11. Everybody see? This is this man's Bible. And uh, she handed it to me, and I was, you know, Aunt Ruth, like, you can't give me Grandpa's Bible. Like, I'm, I'm the oldest grandson, but really, I said, my dad should have this before I get it. And she said, um, what do you mean he has one? Like, what do, you, what do you mean? She's like, oh, this one is 1987 to 1988. That's what you have. She's like, we got about, like, 18 of these. My dad has 1967 to 1969. Uncle Steve has 1970 to 1971. On it goes. There's like 20 of them. Okay? Now listen, to speak the word to people, like when you... I went through Acts 16 because I wanted like a little insight that I could share with you from his devotional time. 
He didn't write anything in the margins. He just underlined the whole chapter. <laughs> I love this man. But, it, but here's like, where's a good example of this? Um, okay, verse 25, it says, but he underlines about midnight. Paul and Silas were, he underlines praying, and he underlines hymns of praise to God gets its own different shaped underline. He just soaked in the word again and again and again through it, like new insights every time. Though I mean, the markings on, that's Hebrews, like, see what this is? This is my Bible after two years of use. That's got a pretty nice binding on it still. I don't know that I've got any scuffs on it either. He would always tell me, and I've heard other fundamentalist old school preachers say this. By the way, my grandpa put the fun in fundamentalism. My dad put the mental. I, I put the duh. But fundamentalists would often say, a person who has a Bible that's falling apart has a life that's being held together. And so what do, what do we have? When, some, when we, you run into somebody that's got trouble in their lives, you get your, are there hurting people in your world? I mean, they're hurting in mine. I'm hurting in mine. What do we give them? What do you, what do you give them? Paul ran into a guy who was like, help me get out of this mess. And he gave him the word of the Lord because he knows it. He knew it. Grandpa knew it. I want to do that. What do I tend to give them? Oh, I read this really interesting blog post about that recently. Yikes. What do I spend my time immersed in? The word of the Lord. Here's the last one. Here's lesson four. Paul. The story of Paul, 35 through 40. 35, when it was day, the magistrates sent to the police saying, let those men go. Okay, so apparently Paul and Silas went back into the jail. (laughs) Now the magistrates, they're afraid if they kept them captive, there would be divine retribution. So 36, the jailer reports these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have let you go. Therefore, come out now. Go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are now Roman citizens. Wait, who are Roman citizens? The Roman citizens? That would have been nice to know about 10 verses ago. Where was that? They're Roman citizens. You can't beat them. They need a trial. There's a whole set of privileges that Paul's supposed to have because he's a Roman citizen. And he, he didn't bring it up while it was happening? Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and they have thrown us into prison. Now do they throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. Whoa, whoa, hey, well, maybe this guy isn't so nice. Maybe he's like a prideful, he wants like a parade on the way out. Not so, watch this. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized. And they took them and asked them to leave the city. Remember, Paul said, we want them to take us out of the city. Now watch, what, watch where Paul takes these guys. So they went out of the prison, and they're not done yet. They visited Lydia. Yep, we got a, I might have left a toothbrush or something over there. We're going to go to Lydia's house. And when they had seen the, no, we're not done yet, brothers. We're going to go visit the brothers. There's some guys at the jail. They heard us singing some songs. It was kind of like a thing that happened last night. We want to like talk to them too. They're not done yet. Then they encouraged them. Oh, hey, we just want to talk to you about your faith. We've got to just do a Bible study before we split. And then they departed. 
Then they departed. Why did Paul do that? Here's why. Lesson four from Paul. We resemble what we revere. He's, be, he's acting like Christ here. Unbelievable. He has this privilege, guys. He has this privilege. He's a Roman citizen. He doesn't have to get beat. He doesn't have to go to jail without a fair trial. He's a Roman citizen. And he lays down his right. He just doesn't even bring it up. No, why? Lydia doesn't have that right. The jailer doesn't have that right. The slave girl doesn't have that right. They're going to face the same persecution. Look what Paul did. He just took a beating for the church. He took a beating for the church. And then when does he pull out his trump card, his privilege? Not when it helps him, but when it helps the church. He just used his power, his influence, his privilege as a gift to the body of believers. By the way, we're going to, on our way out of here, we want to show you other people who are also been exonerated by this earthquake. And who's, they're on God's side. You just need to meet, this is Lydia, purple. You like purple? <laughs> this is Lydia. She's put us up in her home. When we were in her house, there was no earthquake. You should know that. All right, here's some brothers. Guys, are you guys doing okay? High fives. Do we do that yet? Cool. These are some brothers in the church. Look what he does. He uses his privilege to bless the community, not to get his own thing going. Remind you of anybody? You resemble what you revere. How about Jesus? Jesus had some privilege that he laid down. Philippians 2, the hymn, um, verses 4 through 11-ish, where maybe this is the hymn they sang in that jail. Though consider Christ, have the same mind that is yours in Christ, who though he was equal with God, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, he made himself nothing, took on the form of a servant, that's him, not waving around his credentials, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is, this is Paul. He's resembling what he reveres. Remember, he talks about this. Colossians 1 says that I am um, fulfilling what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He's like, yep, Jesus got hit to, for his bride. I'm getting hit for the churches that I'm starting. I'm filling that up. He says in, in Philippians 3, he says that by, um, I want to know him, press on to know that, that um, by sharing with him in his sufferings, so that by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection of the dead. He's resembling what he reveres. So how about us? How about us? Here's the fair question, and we'll be done in a minute. These characteristics, what characterizes us? We resemble what we revere. Here's a verse from John 7, 38. Jesus said, whoever believes in me, whoever, whoever believes in me, every single person, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is you. So look at this. Is, this characterizes you. And this sermon is a call for us to become what we are. Christian, become what you are. You are if you're a believer, you are a spring. A, you have rivers of living water coming out of you. Become what you are. You're generous. You're not like the world. They resemble what they revere. They're profit-driven. Christian, you're hospitable. You live for others. You make space for other people. You're not an exploiter. That's, the, that's that other Lord. Those are those lords. Christian, you're joyous. 
Philippians is a passage that just screams about joy. The world, hopeless. Hopeless. Remember, they lost their hope of profit. Hopeless. There it goes. All done. Christian, we're word speakers. Colossians 3.16 is probably the clearest exhortation to this. We're word speakers. We speak the word of the Lord to hurting people. Not what the world does, which is put up worldly boundary markers again and again. Grandpa's Bible in John 7.38, he wrote Jeremiah 2.13 in really wiggly, penny-pinching handwriting. And he wrote, which is, says this, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. May we worship the fountain of living water and then resemble what we revere. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for this morning and this chance to come and gather together as your people. God, in some ways, this makes a lot of sense, and in other ways, this makes so little sense. The fact that a, a, a Roman jailer could basically um, shipwreck his career by being baptized and turning to Jewish ways and then be joyous about it, the fact that um, um, Lydia would give space in her home to other people, Lord, that's so contradictory to the way that we normally think. Holy Spirit, thank you so much for working in our hearts, for working in our minds and opening our eyes to the truth of your gospel. Thank you for what you call us into. Thank you for what you've made us. God, we are generous people because of who our Savior is, who our Lord is. I pray that you would help us. Give us, God, give us strength. Give us courage. Holy Spirit, we talked about how your work is necessary for us to work. Do that work in us and through us and for us, Jesus. We love you and we're just very aware this morning of our need for you. In your name we pray, amen. Ushers, come down. We're going to take an offering. Just let this, what God's doing in here.